0: I'd you to turn this morning to the prophecy of Zechariah chapter nine. Zechariah chapter nine. If you find Matthew and work backwards from there, might help you. This has been an encouraging year in many ways. Sending out the Kelly family, and soon to send out the elders as well. Uh, but uh, we'll miss their presence. That goes without saying. So do, do pray, pray that God will fill their place with those that are just as committed and just as helpful to the work of God here. We need, we need such faithfulness in the local church. And So while we send them with great encouragement, we also do longing that the Lord will see our need here and fill the spot of such faithful people in our church. Zechariah chapter 9. I'm going to read verse 9, and read down through the end here. Zechariah chapter 9, doing a, a series in the text of Handel's Messiah. As we come to this time of the year, it allows us to just take a break from our usual uh, expositional and sequential preaching through Hebrews in the morning and Luke in the evening, and we'll return to that in January, God willing. Zechariah 9, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, thy King cometh unto thee! He is just, and having salvation, lowly! riding upon an ass, and upon a colt the foal of an ass. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace unto the heathen, and his dominion shall be from sea even to sea, and from the river even to the ends of the earth. As for thee also, by the blood of thy covenant, I have sent forth thy prisoners out of the pit wherein is no water. Turn you to the stronghold, ye prisoners of hope. Even today do I declare that I will render double unto thee when I have bent Judah for me, filled the bow with Ephraim, and raised up thy sons, O Zion, against thy sons, O Greece, and made thee as the sword of a mighty man. And the Lord shall be seen over them, and his arrow shall go forth as the lightning. And the Lord God shall blow the trumpet and shall go with whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts shall defend them, and they shall devour and subdue with sling stones. And they shall drink and make a noise as through wine, and they shall be filled like bowls and as the corners of the altar. And the Lord their God shall save them in that day as the flock of His people, For they shall be as the stones of a crown, lifted up as an ensign upon His land. For how great is His goodness, and how great is His beauty! Corn shall make the young men cheerful, and new wine the maids. Amen. Lord bless the public reading of His Word. Let's bow together in prayer. Let's seek the Lord again for His help. God, we need Thy help as always. These things are spiritually discerned. And so we pray, please forgive our trespasses as we forgive those that trespass against us and grant that thou wilt give the promise of the Spirit. We need, we need the Spirit to hear the Word. We need the Spirit to preach the Word. Oh, how empty and poverty-stricken we are if you withhold your Spirit from us. For Christ's sake, please, not because of us, but despite us, and for the honor of the Lord Jesus, give of thy spirit in abundance this morning, and extend thy kingdom in our midst, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the late 1600s and through the 1700s, the Western world experienced a significant, hugely influential cultural movement known as the Enlightenment. It was a distinct movement, but it wasn't a monolithic movement. What I mean by that is it wasn't all the same. Those involved didn't have all the same precise ideas. Not everyone was coming from the same position or held the same values. For example, some within the movement were atheistic. They had no thought of God at all, while others were holding to a form of belief in God as well. The Enlightenment threatened to have a damaging influence upon Bible-believing Christianity upon the church of Jesus Christ in its purest revelation as it works its way through those that hold tenaciously to the gospel. In his dictionary, Dr. Cairns says, essentially, the Enlightenment was the expression of modern man's attempt to break free from the rule of dogma based on divine revelation and to exercise his own reason with complete autonomy. In other words, just do what you want, separate from the authority of the Word of God. In the face of this, God unleashed upon America and Britain the influence of men like Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, the Wesleys, and others in the Great Awakening. Many men who took up the Word of God and faithfully preached and had a, a dramatic influence upon their generation. They recognized that in order to really have any understanding or to use the mind aright, there needed to be a change of heart, especially with regard to spiritual truths. You can't understand the spiritual without a spiritual experience, which is why Whitfield and others put such emphasis upon the new birth. But God also burdened others in the face of the Enlightenment, others who could see the negative influences of its. Of, its, of, its, of how it was working its way into the, the fabric of the society and the culture. Men such as Charles Jennings, which I know many of you will be aware of. Jennings was a, was a wealthy landowner, a devout Christian, and a man who was gifted in writing texts that he would then give to composers to put music to the text. And of course, he's the one that put together Messiah. He was the one who put together the text text of Messiah, and gave it to Handel, and uh, encouraged him then, as he had worked with him on other occasions, to write the music for what we know as Messiah today. In an article written by Al Mahler, Mahler writes, Jennings was greatly concerned to confront the deism that was then spreading so quickly among the educated classes in England in the wake of the Enlightenment. Deism rejected the self-revelation of God in the Bible, the need of humanity for salvation, the deity of Christ, Christianity's message of salvation, and any divine judgment to come. Deus rejected the very idea of a personal God who can be known, the intervention of God into human history, and of all the Bible's claims of miracles, prophecies, and divine promises. Seeing the threat of viewpoints that called into question the integrity of the Scripture, Jennings responded with the text of Messiah. It was a response. It wasn't just in a vacuum. It was, it was written. It was put together with, in, in response to the atheistic influences of the Enlightenment in his day. One expert in Jennings said, quote, Jennings had the genius to see that the people most alienated from Christianity the skeptics most in danger of eternal damnation, were the people least likely to be reached by sermons and tracts. And one might argue that God gave to the common people the Methodist movement in England and Messiah to the educated classes. What is interesting is that God, God doesn't abandon the reason in coming to us at times and showing us further evidence for why we should believe a little over a century after uh, Messiah, after, and you're, you're talking about Messiah's first performance in, in 1742, and, you know, you have the Great Awakening, in around that time, a little over a century later, God, God gives to us through, through archaeology evidence that, that the things that were being denied and set aside, it's amazing actually, just, just studying the kind of growth of archaeology and and how it begins to be used by God in the midst of the movement and influence of the Enlightenment, which says that we place an emphasis on reason, and and that's how we we understand our world. And then archaeology arises, and we begin to find all these things that give to our minds reasons why the Bible isn't some fable written by men, but is set in a historical setting. And so, for example, you have the discovery in 1879, of the the Cyrus Cylinder, which gives to us the edict of Cyrus and corroborates the biblical record that people were set free and allowed to to go back to their lands, just as we read of in the Word of God concerning the Jews. Which brings us then to Zechariah, because Zechariah ministered at that time. He ministered at a time when there had been the captivity, and the people are moving back to the land. And in their moving back to the land, they needed much encouragement. They've had their time of captivity. And along with Haggai, Zechariah labors to encourage the people, specifically in hope for the Messiah. That with the seven years, with the captivity, with all that preceded it, in the suffering of the Jews, God had not forgotten and was not going to set aside his promise that through the seed of the woman he would bruise the head of the serpent. So you come to this great prophecy of Zechariah, and you find various prophecies that point us to Christ in glorious language. We have have prophecies that indicate his, his threefold office as mediator, as prophet, priest, and king. And the text of our attention this morning relates to him as king. In Zechariah 9 verse 9 and 10, because this is the next text that we look at when we proceed through Handel's Messiah. And this chapter breaks up, it's it's a new section. Uh, The previous eight chapters are are, are really uh, earlier dealing with matters, and then we have this later, latter section of Zechariah, and the date of which is a little more difficult to uh, comprehend specifically. But it's all language pointing forward giving hope to the people of God. And the opening eight verses speaks of God's defense of His people. Verses 9 through 11, God's promise to His people. Verses 12 through 17, God's deliverance of His people. He is going to deliver them. But as I say, verses 9 and 10 are the focus of our attention this morning. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, thy King cometh unto thee! He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt the foal of an ass. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the battle boat shall be cut off and he shall speak peace unto the heathen and his dominion shall be from sea even to sea and from the river even to the ends of the earth. God is sending a king. And, of course, this had been indicated right from the day of Moses. Moses gave indication that God would send a king. You read Deuteronomy chapter 17, you will see that. And we'll speak of the type of characteristics that the king ought to have. Now, Now, God, therefore, was planning to send a king. But you know what happened to Israel. They were impatient like you're impatient, and I'm impatient. There are times where we begin to try and hasten what it is that God intends to do try to speed up the plan of God, and we, we, we don't patiently wait on him. And you know what happened then. They, they, they desired a king, and they longed that Saul would be their king, and he was a, an utter disaster in most regards. But following him, in the Lord's mercy, another king was sent, David. David begins to typify the, the actual king God intends to send. And so every king gets compared to David, the man after God's own But this text again, centuries after David, is now telling us this king is still coming. Thy king cometh unto thee. Thy king cometh unto thee. What encouraging words. And so as we have given consideration, you go through Messiah, we have arrived already at the point where the king has come, haven't we? Because last Lord's Day in the evening time, we came to Luke chapter 2 and we saw there the arrival of the king and the angels meeting with the shepherds in that occasion. So, we have, the King has come. That's what we're considering this morning. The King has come. And I want you to note with me, first of all, the response. The response. As we look at this response that is given in the text, first we ask, who is to respond? Who is to respond? Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Zion. Jerusalem before we get to the response we want to think about who's is, who's is responding here the daughter of zion the daughter of jerusalem now these are synonymous terms they are used primarily if you search your bible they're used primarily in the prophetic passages you think about it, you think about it, the ancient cities were birthplaces of the people the city was considered the mother of the people. And so Jerusalem, as an ancient city, was a a mother to her people. And so she was to represent them collectively, but but more to the point, they're considered as daughters because they're reflecting this idea of being the bride. And the daughters are to be pure. If you read some of the passages you will learn, especially Isaiah, I think, chapter 3 and 4, you will find that of the impurities and the infidelity of these daughters. The fact that the daughters of Jerusalem are not being what they should be. There's an infidelity in their living. But in later chapters, in the same prophecy, Isaiah, God communicates to them, Isaiah 52 verse 2 and 62 verse 11, that He intends to deliver them. So, so you, you keep the language, you pull it all together, and you realize that the daughters of Jerusalem, the daughters of Zion, are those that have been highly favored, and at times we can see them fall, turn away, leave the Lord, but He intends to show mercy to them regardless. He's going to call them to Himself and deliver them, which is what we have here. Despite what they had come through, despite all the, the challenges of being in captivity, and even the challenges in the return to Jerusalem, He intends to deliver. And this passage then is couched in language of deliverance. And I'm not going to look at the other verses that precede verse 9 and even afterwards, but, but it is it's language of deliverance. That's the point. They are enemies. God's going to defend His people. God is going to deliver His people. And they can be confident that that will transpire. But this is it all hinges on this. All of that, the fact that He's going to defend His people, the opening eight verses, and deliver them, the latter verses from verse 12, hinges on the promise. Verse 9 and following, this promise. This promise of one who is to come. And so it is a word to the people who see the hope in the promise. It is a word to those that hear the language and respond. Those that are sensitive to God's communication of His will, which is not the case for everyone. I could stand up here today and preach about the Lord's return. The fact that He's coming back again. And some of you, your heart will respond in various ways. Your heart will be thrilled about the thought that Christ is returning and all the promises that relate to that and what He's going to do in dealing with His and our enemies as well as bringing the full consummation of all that He has promised to you, and you await it in holy anticipation, and your heart is moved by it, and you rejoice in it. At the same time, I could preach the same thing, and some sit here, and you just, it's like you don't care. You don't care that the Lord is coming back. You're not affected by it. You're not looking towards it. You're not anticipating it. You're not praying for it. You're not desirous. There's no interest in your heart that this would come to pass. And then you ask the question Well, are you are you a real daughter of Zion? Are you a daughter of Jerusalem? This word, then, that calls for a response is to those who are truly the Lord's people, those who are excited about what he is going to do. But how are they to respond then? How are they to respond? Rejoice greatly! Rejoice greatly. In other words, rejoice exceedingly or rejoice mightily. You might substitute those words. Now, this is not what happens usually as we live here and we look at, we can call them kings or leaders of any description. The king plays a political role, a civic role. And this is what is coming. Christ is coming in this civic aspect. This is how we're thinking of him as king governing over this realm over his people and beyond. And when we look at the average ruler that we have, I don't think there's reason often to really rejoice. <laughs> we, we mourn, don't we? we? We mourn. When the wicked are in power, we mourn. But this is cause for joy. The arrival of this king is cause for great joy. And so we are called upon, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Don't, 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 don't be numb. Don't, or, or let me put it this way. Sometimes, sometimes what, how we feel is, is, is not the, it's not just the absence of, of sorrow, right? You might say, well, there's, the, I'm not sorrowful. So there's the absence there's, of, of sorrow. Sorrow's not there in your heart. But, that, but that's not sufficient. It's not sufficient to merely experience the absence of sorrow. There has to be the positive. There has to be the presence of joy. And so in this news, and you, you come to this time of the year, and there are all sorts of factors. I get it. I get that this can be a difficult time of the year as well. Lost loved ones and mourning and sadness and things not being the way you would want them to be. Sometimes we come to the end of the year and it can be the most painful, most painful time of the year. I get it, and I, I don't minimize that. I think of these people as well. When they came back to Jerusalem and all that faced them, the, the rubble and the, 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 the fact that things are not the way they once were. And even after the temple's erected, you know, those that remember the former and they're, they're mourning, they're mourning because it's not like the former glory. And our circumstances can press in and affect how we feel, even, even though we're aware of certain truths that should bless us. So you're here this morning and I ask you, are you saved? You say yes. And does that delight you? Yes. And are you thankful? Yes. And yet there's something else going on in your life that overshadows the joy of your salvation. That's real for us all. And these people were no different. It's not like they were living in the high life and and riding the crest of a wave of blessing. They were going through serious trials and difficulties. This was not an easy time for them. And yet the Lord gives a word, and He calls them, this is the response, rejoice. Rejoice greatly. While this is predominantly spiritual in its response, I ask myself, is it also physically to be shown? Am I to show this joy physically? And I think, yes, it it has here. I, if, if you can maybe mask it in the word rejoice greatly, and you say, Yes, preacher, in myself, I, in, in here, I, I rejoice greatly. And then I ask, Well, do you shout? <laughs> shout! Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem! That, that has to take on an expressive note in which we are declaring something and, and, and saying something, and, and that should be true this Saturday. If you're gathering with us this Saturday, and, and it's the true here in the congregation, but it will be let, let me just preach as in relation to, to Saturday, and you're publicly there singing these carols, joy to the world, and so on, don't say it, or don't sing it as if you're sad about what it is that's going on. It, it should in some way be expressed. Now, we're not all, we don't all beam the same way, I get it. And we have different dispositions, and some of us can look more uh, severe-looking, let's say. And there are reasons for that. The Lord has His purposes, you know, in even the the distinctions of facial features. Isn't it amazing? Just the differences between us. But we're to, in some way, to the best of our ability, express the joy so that those that pass by those walking through, those that hear are singing or maybe drawn to figure out what's going on up there. Let our faces even display the message that we are singing at the top of our lungs in joy to the Lord. So the response, the response, we come to this time of the year, and of course we're to rejoice all the time in the incarnation, but we place a particular emphasis on it and it therefore should garner a particular joy that He has come. Because He is calling upon this. To all of his people, he is, he is anticipating it and prophesying of it, and he's saying this is the right response, which is why then you come to, as I said last week, you come to Luke 1 and 2 and so on, and it's just joy is filling the atmosphere everywhere. They respond exactly as the text, as the prophecy indicated they should, and so should we. So, the response. Secondly, the reputation. Reputation. What do we have here? Well, we're told in this passage, it speaks of him riding upon a young donkey who points to Christ's entrance into Jerusalem a week before his death and resurrection, as I'm sure you are well aware, and it gets referenced in the Gospels in regard to that. But it's not just at that moment. This text doesn't have application just for that one occasion which is why then it comes at the very point of His arrival. Those who can see the glory of who has come while He is still an infant are to respond in the same way. They are to rejoice. And why are they rejoicing? Well, because of the reputation that He has. I mean, I, I can't take time to go and look at the language of, of Simeon, particularly, in some of the prophetic language concerning the infant child, and tie it into the language here of of verse 9, being just and having salvation and lowly. But that influence, his influence of his ministry was seen even at the time of his birth. But let's look at what it says about him. First, he is just. The word there often is translated as righteous. Righteous. And so it's declaring that he is righteous. This one who is coming is righteous. What do you want your king to have? You want him to have righteousness. You want him to be filled with a sense of equity, doing right, ruling rightly. I mean, that's that's the fear we have, isn't it? I mean, you 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 have you have a number of of options with regard to how you're going to be governed. We're all going to be governed. And we can be governed by a monarchy. We can gover- govern governed by a form of democracy. But if you if you don't have a, mo- a monarchy and democracy doesn't work, and democracy is is only works insofar as you have the virtue of the people. What happens? What happens when you lose the virtue of the people? You get a tyrant. That's, that's almost inevitable. You ask yourself where America's headed with the fall of her, her virtue. But this one, this one, we have no such concerns. He is just. He is just. He's going to rule righteously. And this, of course, is a blessing to know this. But, but why? You know, you start thinking about it. He comes. He comes Why? Well, like, like John the Baptist and, and that interaction with John the Baptist where it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. You're, indicate, you're seeing indicated that this isn't just something he is. This is something he is doing. And so he is working out righteousness. Why? Because the one who rules represents. That's always the way. Britain is, is represented. The people of Britain are represented by the monarch. Insofar as they conduct their affairs, it reflects on the nation. And of course, even more so in a bygone era. And while that is true in in our experience, when when nations are ruled by a monarch, that that monarch reflects the people, that this is even more true about Christ. He's not just ruling. He is representing. And He is representing in an official capacity. Because He is representing us before God. And in order to do that, then He has to be righteous. This brings us, and I, I won't take time to deal with it, but just it brings us to the idea, let me just drop the seed into your mind, it brings us to the whole idea of His righteousness that He is weaving in order to impute to those who believe in Him. So that when it says He is just, or He is righteous, draws an even greater hallelujah because this isn't just for my benefit in terms of Him governing over where I live. This is Him bringing me to God. This is Him bringing me near to God and unifying me and giving me a sense of acceptance before God despite my own unrighteousness. So He is just. Praise His name. But He is also gracious, isn't He? Because he comes having salvation. Having salvation. Why does he have salvation? It's not to save himself. He doesn't need saving. But he is coming to dispense what he has. To dispense salvation. Now, other kings can save their nation. But this one saves sinners. He saves sinners. No other king can do that except this king. And so salvation is the possession of Messiah. This is what we're seeing there in in the babe born in Bethlehem, in the one born to die. That one is bringing with him salvation, and so thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And so his whole name is declaring, is displaying, is publicly putting before everyone what he is here to do. He is bringing salvation. So we are encouraged by this. In Acts 10, verse 43, we read there, that to him give all the prophets witness that through his name whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. You think of that. You go through your Old Testament Scriptures, do you see that? If you can't see it anywhere else, at least see it here. All the prophets give witness. Zechariah gives witness. What's he giving witness to? This one who's bringing salvation. All you need to do is believe in his name. Believe in his name. Boys and girls, do you believe in his name? Do you have salvation? Each one of you here, do you believe? Do you have? Do you, have you received from His hand? as he, he comes. He comes. He condescends. Takes on flesh, holding out a hand. And in that hand is salvation. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So this is His grace. He's coming graciously. We haven't earned this. We, haven't, we don't deserve this. He doesn't come bringing us salvation that we have persuaded Him to bring or that we have in some way can give back to Him and say, well, you're bringing salvation. Here's what we can give in return. No, He comes to give it graciously to change our lives. As many as received Him, to them give He power to become the sons of God even to them that believe on His name. It's not just just and gracious, he is also humble. Because it tells us he is lowly. He is just and having salvation. Lowly. And riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the fall of an ass. Of course, as I say, it's true of that time he entered into Jerusalem, but it's also true. The character is true throughout his entire earthly ministry. And despite the loftiness of his character, thy king cometh, you think, well, how do we envisage him coming? You see him coming like other kings arrive, with all their pomp and this ostentatious display of, of all the grandeur and wealth of the nation. Is that what we see? Do we see him coming in this, this magnificent display that caused us to be stunned? Or, or does he come lowly? And we know he comes lowly. It's quite an amazing thing that the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, comes in a lowly fashion. You think of what he is enduring in his life. From the moment of his birth, the militance that exists against him, the desire of Herod to find out where he was born so that he might see him executed. And yet he he just comes in this lowly way. Throughout his growing up, it's, it's lowly, isn't it? It's just this humility. Parents, parents were were just about known within the local vicinity, so that they could say, "Is not the car- this the carpenter's son? The carpenter's son." No offense to the carpenters that are here, but it's not meant to portray a sense of grandeur, is it? Lowly. Oh, how lowly. And is it amazing then that those who would call themselves by His name would in any way think themselves to be proud? Beloved, this is a season when we think about it and we just pause and give proper consideration to this time of the year and what we're displaying. It should result in deepening humility in all of our hearts. It's not just seeing His humility, but we are being reminded of the humility that should adorn us. We're not going out there to, to tell the world and, in a sense of, of pride how right we are and how wrong they are. To have always before us, there go I, but for the grace of God. I am what I am by the grace of God. That's, that's the only reason why I'm found here in this place, worshiping this king, rejoicing in his arrival, and anticipating his return. And so we don't go out there with all of our theological knowledge and start arguing and, and trying to put everyone down and show our superior insight and, and condemn faithful people in other places that, 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 okay, they may be wrong and this, that, and the other. But let us not go out into the world and at the forefront is all the things that we have right and they have wrong. Even Christ's ministry was... Can you imagine if Christ's... the forefront of His ministry was condemning everything that was wrong? Oh yes, He pointed out. You know, the Sermon on the Mount. Does He point out things that are wrong? Absolutely. Absolutely. Ye have heard that it hath been said. But I say unto you, He's correcting the wrong that's there. But it's not the only message, is it? So we must adorn humility. We must wear it as a garment. It must clothe us so that whatever people say about us, they are able to recognize there's a humility in that person. And in that they reflect the Lord, because this, he doesn't want to be reflected by pride and big displays. You know, that's, that's why when he talks about dress in the church, and dress gets, gets detailed, especially with regard to the woman, what is it? I don't want ostentatious shows in the church. It, it doesn't rightly reflect the people of God, redeemed by such a humble servant as our Lord Jesus. Then, thirdly, the rain. The rain. We have seen the response. And we have seen here the reputation. We now see the rain. And that brings us into verse 10. And I don't want to deal with all of it here. I will cut off the chariot of Ephraim and the horse of Jerusalem. I think there's we are to see here a distinction. The chariot and the horse is used for warfare. What's Christ doing? He's coming on the colt, a colt, the full of an ass. There's to be a, a contrast there, but I, I won't say any more there. But what, what the sea, first of all, what he reigns over, what he reigns over. He shall speak peace unto the heathen and his dominion shall be from sea even to sea and from the river even to the ends of the earth. Now, again, in Messiah, the, this, the latter part of this verse doesn't get dealt with, but I think we need to look at it because kings reign, and we want to see what he reigns over. And what's encouraging when you read this text, he shall speak peace unto the heathen, and his dominion shall be from sea even to sea and from the river even to the ends of the earth. Now, if you have a margin that gives references, it, it will tell you one passage, Psalm 72, is being significant here. If you go to Psalm 72, verse 8, I just point this out for your encouragement. In Psalm 72, verse 8, it says, verbatim, he shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth. In other words, what Zechariah is doing is he is drawing, in the midst of his prophecy, he's actually drawing directly from Psalm 72, verse 8. Now, what does that tell you? What does that tell you? Sometimes when we preach from the Old Testament or even in conversation, I've had this quite recently, actually, in conversation, making you know, discussing Old Testament texts and pointing out the the messianic significance or the gospel message that is is there in the pages of the Old Testament, there can be this 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 response that says, Well that's not really what it wasn't the authorial intent. It's not really what's going on there. So you need to be careful that you don't you don't read into it something that's not there. And I understand that's that's a true statement in as far as it goes. But if we, if we do not have in our hearts a desire to see Christ in the Old Testament, I'll tell you something, you'll not see Him. You won't see Him. But the prophet could see Him. And so as he's reading Psalm 72, as he is committed to memory Psalm 72, he quotes from the psalm. And so what's he reading in Psalm 72? Not just some words by, by David. Not just words by Whoever the writer of the, the psalmist is there, I'm trying to think now if it's Asaph. But, but there's a, there's, there is seeing there something deeper, isn't there? He is seeing the messianic message that is there. And, and so as he, as he deals with the arrival of Messiah, he draws from, from the fact that previous prophets pointed to this Messiah. In other words, we don't get to the New Testament to see what passages in the Old Testament apply to Messiah alone. In the Old Testament, we can see the Old Testament using itself to point to the Messiah. In other words, from Genesis through Malachi, there is this pointing forward and hope that is established upon Christ. And so when you read through the pages, you are to see Christ. Yes, you are to see. It is the Son of God in that garden coming to Adam and Eve. and Right through the pages to see the pre-incarnate Son of God, ministering and communicating with His people. So, what does He reign over? Well, He reigns over. You see it from sea to sea, from the river even to the ends of the earth. Every time you find a kingdom that has language of of not having boundaries, you know you're you know you're dealing with the Messiah. There's this 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 is a kingdom without boundaries. So, so boys and girls, remember that. The, the, Everyone remember that. The, the the boundaries of the kingdom of Christ are not there. They they extend, they, they, they penetrate every visible boundary and separation of nations. It, it just it just goes right through it. It doesn't matter what men say, Christ says, This is mine, and his people are sent to those places to preach his name and turn many onto righteousness. So what? He reigns over. He reigns over everything. It's all His. And how how does He extend His reign? How does He extend His reign? He shall speak peace unto the heathen. Yes, this this is what is used by by Messiah in Handel's Messiah. He shall speak peace unto the heathen. What an encouragement. Speaking peace to the heathen. We look at the heathen and we want to speak language of judgment, don't we? We want to tell them we're in their wrong. And how horrendous it is. I want to publicly denounce every flaw and every sin and every wickedness. And there's a place for it. But Christ extends his kingdom largely through this kind of work. Speaking peace to the heathen. As hostile as the world is, It is not best won by meeting its hostility with further hostility. The time is coming when he will return and take vengeance on them that know not God. It will come soon enough. But our ministry, me as a preacher, you as the Lord's people, We are ambassadors of peace. Do we give warnings? Sure. But not exclusively. And not even as a matter of emphasis. Peace unto the heathen. Peace to the godless. Peace to the ignorant. Peace to the unlovely. Peace to the condemned. Peace to the idolater. Peace. Do not wish for someone to come prior to the return of our Lord Jesus Christ in in some fashion of forcing... By words of threat, people into the kingdom can't be done. Tried in the past. It's been tried. There are people talking today that seem to want to resurrect that kind of approach. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. So, you're an ambassador of peace. What, are you, what, 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 what peace? What are you communicating? Well, before we close, communicating peace with God, aren't you? How do you get peace with God? And so you, you tell them Romans 5 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You need Christ, you need this one who has come into the world. You need God to be incarnate, take on flesh, and live as you can't live, and die what you dare not die, and suffer in your place, and be accepted by God, and with His resurrection bring you into life. You need that. You can't do it. You're not going to face death and win yourself. You need Christ. This is our hope, isn't it, believer? It's our hope even as our loved ones pass, as they're, they're joined to Christ. And being joined to Him in His death, they're so joined to Him in His resurrection, and they too shall live forever and forever. But we also communicate not only peace with God, but the peace of God. Having peace with God, therefore we want the peace of God, God giving peace to our hearts, settling us in the midst of an unsettled world. Jesus promised to His disciples, peace I leave with you, My peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth. (laughs) Yes, the world offers peace. And you know, in the context, really, the peace that the world offers primarily is that be on our side and you'll not face the anti-Christ hostility that there is in this world. So if you side with us instead of with Christ, you won't face the anti-Christ hostility will give you peace, will not attack you, will not go after you, will not try to prevent you from getting jobs or going higher in your employment or any other forms of discrimination and hatred against you for your allegiance to Christ. But Christ says, no, no, I'll give my peace, and it's not the same as the world gives. And you read through what he says in John 14, 15, 16, They're going to face this hostility of the world, but in them will be peace. So that they can face their accusers and face the persecution and face martyrdom and be at peace. The Lord is able to give this, beloved. He is able to give this. Some of you need fresh endowment of it. He shall speak peace unto the heathen. Yes, communicate peace Lord, it is you we need to hear from, isn't it? Yes, beloved, have that mindset. It is the Lord you need to hear from. <sighs> I, I, I wish this pulpit was even more anointed so that when you gathered here, you weren't just standing or sitting expecting to hear from some flawed man, but that you would weakly, all the time, hear words of peace from your King. Because he is the one communicating to you. He is the one saying that he will give peace unto you. And I trust that you have it. Oh, this king does not extend his kingdom through carnal means. The weapons of his warfare are not carnal in this period and age. Nor is it for us. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. But they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. And so, beloved, you want to see a difference in Greenville? You keep preaching up Christ. You keep doing it. And so you go, those of you involved with generations, you go there to that boy's home and you realize this this is the message. These boys, so many of them, have no peace. What do they need? They need this. And you preach Christ. And you tell them the one who communicates peace. And it's the same everywhere we go, in your place of work, in your neighborhood. Preach up Christ. He can give peace to the heathen. You don't need to deal with all the peculiarities of, of the, 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 the deterioration and rot of our community. I know that there's, there's a place for it. But it amazes me, it amazes me that, that, that people, and I just say this as a side, their churches, and this is just an example, I had a reminder of this in the past few days, their churches that have prayer meetings for their pro-life efforts, And that's it. They have a once a month, I'm thinking of one person I talked to, they have a once a month prayer meeting, it's for the pro-life efforts that they're involved with. They have no other prayer meeting. They don't have a weekly prayer meeting, they don't have anything else, there's no other corporate times of prayer, just once a month for their efforts regarding the pro-life issue. And I think to myself, you talk about topsy-turvy, you talk about not getting it. You first prioritize men's right relationship to their God. The problem with the church, I'm, 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 on, the, I'm on the brink of moving into a run here. <laughs> Lord, help me. I've mentioned it before. I'll simply say, Until the church realizes the importance of first table issues. How man is to be reconciled to God and worship Him aright. All the second table issues. Thou shalt not kill, commit adultery, all the the distortions of that in society. You're not going to write that. There'll be no significant difference if you even succeed in writing that and the right worship of God is ignored. And so we come, and what do we do on Wednesday nights? What do we do? We pray for all sorts of things, but as I've said to you, there needs to be an emphasis on this. God's blessing upon the communication of the gospel. Saving souls, seeing the one to Christ, so that you go out there and you speak for the Lord and you speak peace to the heathen and he by his spirit takes your feeble efforts and opens their blinded eyes and the scales fall off and they behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And they run to him in repentance and faith. And their lives are transformed. So they, they don't want to kill their unborn children. And they don't want to do anything else that breaks the second table of the law either. They need to be rightly related to God. So beloved, speak the gospel. Frequently. Fervently. And may the Spirit rest upon you in your efforts. Let's bow together in prayer. Rejoice greatly, beloved. Rejoice mightily. Your King cometh. And for you, living in this dispensation, He has come. You can look back to a fulfilled prophecy, and you can rejoice. And so we do. We do. We sing. We gladly stand in the public arena, and we sing. We sing praises of what the Lord Jesus has done as a son of God taking flesh. Come, let us adore him. We invite others to do the same. God, we pray, help us. Help us to be busy in publishing the gospel of peace. Grant us greater help in this work. There are many problems in our communities, many forms of wickedness in our society and we are governed largely by evil men. We pray that our King will come and that He will manifest in an outpouring of His Spirit a work upon the hearts of multitudes of people, a saving work that turns them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. Help our feeble efforts and grant, Lord, Thy blessing upon the preaching of thy word. So hear us, grant favor this afternoon, bless our time together with our families, and bring us back again to worship thee, the living God. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus, and the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore. Amen.